Well, thank you for uh, coming out tonight and giving of your evening. I know that's no light, light thing to give an evening with all of us have such busy schedules, I know. So my lecture tonight is Jesus as Priest and Sacrifice in Hebrews, and I hope to talk, if I have time, a little bit about perfection and sanctification at the end. One of the central themes of Hebrews is that Jesus is the great high priest, and hence believers should not attach themselves to or entrust themselves to any other high priest. As Barnabas Linders says about Hebrews, two ideas are unique in the New Testament. The priesthood of Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, is entirely new. Similarly, his use of the ceremonial day of atonement to expound upon the sacrificial death of Jesus goes beyond any previous expositions of the faith that Christ died for our sins, unquote. The importance of the high priestly theme is evident from Hebrews 8.1, which we looked at this morning. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What is striking here is that the author says that the main point in his discourse is that Jesus is a high priest who has completed his work. I actually think that that's the main point theologically, the main point pastorally I'm going to talk about tomorrow in terms of the warning passages. Jesus is a very different kind of high priest from Levitical high priest, for his work as high priest is completed and finished, and thus he has sat down at God's right hand. The Levitical high priests, on the other hand, continually stand, 10-11, for their work as priests is never completed which demonstrates the inadequacy and ineffectiveness of their priesthood. The Levitical priesthood is a copy and shadow of a better priesthood, a heavenly priesthood, which introduces a better covenant. The Levitical priesthood was not evil or contrary to the will of God. The Lord designed it to function for a certain period of salvation history, but it was never intended to be permanent. Jesus is a better priest for he enters as priest into God's very presence and secures eternal redemption, 9, 11, and 12. Whereas the high priest from Aaron has limited access to God, entering his presence in the most holy place only once a year. The author encourages the readers to draw near to God since they have such a great high priest, 10, 21, and 22. Jesus has passed through the heavens, 4, 14, and entered the very presence of God. The exhortation to draw near makes sense in light of what has been taught about the high priest in the entire letter. The reader should be full of confidence in God's presence since Jesus as high priest has secured permanent access to God for them. It is evident that Jesus' high priesthood is closely tied to his sacrifice, a theme which we will consider shortly. Jesus' priesthood is effective because he made satisfaction or propitiation for the sins of his people. The various themes in Hebrews interlock together, and Jesus' priesthood is tied to his humanity. He could only be a merciful and faithful high priest if he was like his brothers in every way, 2.17. High priests must be human, 5.1. And Jesus is merciful and sympathetic because he has been tempted like all human beings, 4.15. He is not an exalted high priest untouched by the sufferings of the human condition, 
As high priest, he knew the anguish of temptation and the suffering of the cross. Jesus was not an ordinary priest, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He did not exalt himself and choose the vocation of high priesthood. Rather, God appointed him to the priesthood, 5-5, so that it was an honor bestowed by God. The words of appointment relative to Jesus hail from Psalm 110, verse 4. Jesus' priesthood is explained in terms of his election and appointment by God and cannot be attributed to his selfish will or to his desire for a vocation. Melchizedek in the Old Testament is a mysterious figure appearing only in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. The writer of Hebrews is not the only author who shows interest in Melchizedek, for he also appears in the Qumran writings. In 11Q Melchizedek, Melchizedek plays a major role at the final judgment. This is a Qumran document. Some of you may have read it. It's very, very brief. Proclaiming liberty to Israel at Jubilee and announcing in this Qumran document, that's what I'm talking about right now, and announcing the forgiveness of their sins. Indeed, he is even called Elohim, God, which fits with his role at the final judgment. It is quite doubtful that the divine role of Melchizedek was taken literally, as if he were literally God, even at Qumran. There's no evidence of rival gods at Qumran or elsewhere in Judaism. I, I think Hurtado's right there, if you've read Hurtado's work on, on this matter. What we do see, though, is that Melchizedek played an important eschatological role in some Jewish circles. It is evident from Qumran that the author of Hebrews was not alone in spying out significance in the person of Melchizedek. And actually, there's many other traditions, but we don't have time to look at those. You could look at Horton's book and Mason have a book if you're interested in that. In the Old Testament, Melchizedek surfaces after Abraham rescued Lot from those who captured him in Genesis 14. In celebration, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine and is identified as a priest to God Most High, 14.18. The bread and wine aren't picked up typologically in the New Testament, presumably because it isn't connected to the eternal character of the Melchizedekian priesthood. Many have related these elements to the Lord's Supper and Jesus' sacrifice, but I am hesitant about applying this typologically since the author of Hebrews overlooks this dimension of Melchizedek's uh, encounter with Abraham, especially when he emphasizes every other detail virtually of the encounter. We don't hear of Melchizedek again in the Old Testament after Genesis until Psalm 110, where he appears as unexpectedly in the psalm as he does in the narrative of Genesis 14. The author has already told us of one who will be David's Lord, verse 1 of Psalm 110, showing that he is a kingly figure. Suddenly, he also, God also declares with an oath that this one will also be a priest like Melchizedek. The historical and progressive character of the revelation is crucial here, for the promise from the psalmist comes after the appearance of the institution of the Levitical priesthood is inaugurated, demonstrating that another order of priesthood, a Melchizedekian priesthood, is coming. Hebrews identifies the priest of Psalm 110 as the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amy Peeler rightly says that Jesus' sonship and priesthood don't clash, but are, quote, reciprocal identities, both located within 
and existing because of the paternal actions of God, unquote. Jesus' role as son qualifies him to be a priest, and hence his filial status as son has priority over the priestly. Some throughout the history of the church have said that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ. The evidence for this reading is quite impressive. Melchizedek suddenly appears on earth, as if out of nowhere, celebrating Abraham's victory with bread and wine. Furthermore, Hebrews 7.3 seems to identify him as an eternal person, one who didn't have a mother or father, neither the beginning of life nor the end of days. Despite the impressive evidence supporting such a reading, it is more persuasive to identify Melchizedek as a human being. When we read Genesis 14 carefully, it is evident that Melchizedek isn't a divine figure. He is the king of Salem, Genesis 14, 18. And therefore, he reigned as king at a particular place and at a specific time in history. And I said this morning, if we take the text literally, we are faced with the strange notion that Melchizedek didn't even have a mother. I guess that fit with him being a divine being, though. Nor does the wording in 7.3 lend itself to the idea that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ. The text doesn't say that Melchizedek was the Son of God, but that he was made like the Son of God, 7.3. So he isn't identified as the Son of God, but compared to him. It is probable from the wording used here that Melchizedek was a type anticipating the coming of, of the Christ. The author exploits the silence of the text to draw a correspondence between Jesus Christ and Melchizedek. Unlike Levitical priests, no genealogy is presented for Melchizedek, showing that he is a priest of a different order. The material on Melchizedek might seem arcane or even strange to us, but the writer wants to show that he is a different kind of priest and a better priest than the Levitical priests. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, for Abraham gave a tenth of his plunder to Melchizedek and was blessed by him, chapter 7. Indeed, Levi, in a sense, gave a tenth to Melchizedek since he descended from Abraham. The reason all of this is important is Jesus is a Melchizedekian priest, and hence Jesus is superior to Levitical priests. The readers then should not put their faith in the Levitical priesthood to obtain forgiveness of sins, for in doing so, they are relying on an inferior priesthood. All this theology is intended to highlight a pastoral application. Indeed, the author piles up arguments supporting the superiority of Christ's priesthood. So this, this is basically chapter 7. First, if perfection were truly granted through the Levitical priesthood, verses 11 and 12, then the Lord would not predict and institute another priesthood, a Melchizedekian one. So that's verses 11 and 12. The Lord, second, the Lord would not inaugurate a new priesthood if the Levitical priesthood were truly effective. Hence, Jesus' priesthood is a different priesthood, for Jesus is not a Levitical priest, but descends from the tribe of Judah. That's verses 13 and 14. Third, the author reverts to the prophecy of the Melchizedekian priesthood in verses 15 through 17. Such a prophecy demonstrates that the Levitical priesthood was temporary in nature. There wouldn't be a prophecy about a new priesthood if the old priesthood was effective and sufficient. The Melchizedekian priesthood is inherently superior for it is based on the power of an indestructible life, 716, since Jesus conquered death. Fourth, the Levitical priesthood is defective because of its weakness, 718. 
By way of contrast, Jesus' priesthood is qualitatively different for believers are brought into fellowship with God, 719. Fifth, the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood is not just a retrospective matter, 720 through 22. God swore on an oath that the Melchizedekian priesthood would be perpetual. On the other hand, no oath accompanied the Levitical priesthood, and there was no promise that it would persist. Sixth, the inadequacy of the Levitical priesthood is evident when one considers the nature of the priesthood. The office of priest constantly changes, for the priests keep dying, 723. Jesus' priesthood conversely never ends, for he has conquered death. And since Jesus has triumphed over death, his saving power as the ever-living and interceding one never ends, 725. Seventh, the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus is better because Jesus is a sinless priest whereas Levitical priests were weak and sinful, 726 through 28. So we see here, the author gives a battery of arguments supporting the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. But again, he does so for pastoral reasons. When we apply this pastorally today, right, our, our hearers aren't tempted to go back to the Levitical priesthood. So we, gotta make, we have to make that connection, I think, pastorally to them, don't we? Just as our... Readers today aren't tempted to be circumcised for salvation, right? Or hearers. The readers must not forsake Jesus as their high priest. Jesus is their Melchizedekian priest king who has sat down at God's right hand because his work is finished. And the readers should rest entirely in what Jesus has done for them. So the sacrifice of Jesus is closely tied to his priesthood. The tabernacle and its furniture on earth are a copy of what is in heaven. And the heavenly things are cleansed with a better sacrifice. Jesus offers a better sacrifice because he gave of himself on a better altar, 1310. His sprinkled blood is better than Abel's, 1224. For in contrast to Abel, his blood actually cleanses from sin. Before saying more about Jesus' sacrifice, a word should be said about the author's anthropology. It should be noted at the outset that the author doesn't explicitly set forth an anthropological vision of human beings. His anthropology must be derived from the letter as a whole. Still, we can't understand Jesus' priesthood if we don't grasp Hebrews' conception of human beings. It is evident from Hebrews 2, 5 through 8, where the author cites Psalm 8, that human beings are considered to be magnificent. God made them to be his vice regents, and hence they are called upon to rule the world for him. But even in this context, it is evident that something tragic and terrible has happened to prevent human beings from realizing their calling. Jason Whitlark nicely summarizes the anthropological pessimism found in Hebrews. The writer believes human beings are defiled by sin. Our consciences need to be cleansed since we are stained by sin. And forgiveness for transgressions can only be granted if blood is shed. The sacrifice of Jesus provides such forgiveness, indicating that human beings have failed to do what God requires and need absolution for the evil done, for what the author calls dead works, 6.1.9.14. Dead works signifies works that lead to death. 
And because of such works, human beings need atonement for the evil they have per perpetrated. Human beings are also unholy, and hence they need to be sanctified and inducted into the realm of the holy. Sanctification also becomes a reality through the work of Jesus Christ. But what we should observe is that apart from Christ, human beings are outside of the realm of the holy and are corrupted by sin. The plight of human beings is also signaled by the rule of death over their lives, 2, 14, and 15. Indeed, the author says they are under Satan's power in 2, 15, and will face final judgment, 9, 27. Clearly, human beings need to be freed from the power of Satan, from death, and from judgment. In the same way, the warnings in the letter, we'll talk about those more tomorrow, indicate the severity of judgment warranted for those who give themselves to sin, for those who fail to trust in Jesus. The corruption and evil of human beings are such that they will face death and final judgment unless their sins are atoned for. When the author reflects on Jesus' sacrifice, he thinks covenantally. The author explains that the old covenant was inaugurated with blood sacrifices, 9, 15 through 22. In Exodus 24, the covenant was inaugurated with Israel. During the ceremony, the blood of bulls was sprinkled on both the altar and the people. The author of Hebrews apparently doesn't limit himself to this event, although he alludes to it. This is a careful reading, right? For he includes the blood of goats and the roll of water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, along with the blood being sprinkled on the scroll. We find such practices reflected in the ritual of the heifer, which purified Israelites in Numbers 19, for sprinkling water, blood, hyssop, and scarlet yarn all play a role in purification in the sacrifice of the heifer in Numbers 19. Hyssop and blood are also used in the Passover sacrifice. So if you see what I'm saying here, he, he cites Exodus 24, but, it, but the language used exceeds what we find in Exodus 24. So I think he's also drawing on Numbers 19 and Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. So the author of Hebrews, in my judgment, merges different Old Testament traditions to signify that Jesus' sacrifice fulfills all Old Testament institutions related to cleansing and forgiveness, the, covenant, the inauguration of the covenant, the heifer, and, and, and even the Passover here. It is important to point out that Old Testament sacrifices were ordained by God and are not rejected as evil. The author never says that the Old Covenant was evil from the beginning. You could read Barnabas as saying that in the Epistle of Barnabas, but Hebrews doesn't do that, does it? Instead, they are typological, pointing to the final and ultimate sacrifice. Here I agree with Ben Ribbons that the Old Testament sacrifices are Christological and sacramental types of the sacrifice of Christ. They, they forgave sins. I'm talking about Old Testament sacrifices now. They forgave sins under the Old Covenant because they pointed forward to the final and effective sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The violence and blood of sacrifices send, send a message about the evil of humanity, showing that sin is a great offense against God which can only be satisfied by the death of another, by a substitute which takes the penalty deserved by human beings. The sins of the people had to be propitiated and expiated. I think the word there, helaskamai, means both. 
propitiation and expiation. There had to be appeasement for the sins committed and sins needed to be erased and blotted out for forgiveness to be granted. The law and its sacrifices are a shadow of the good things to come, 10.1. Sacrifices are perpetually offered under the old covenant, but they are not efficacious. The author argues that the repetition of sacrifices reveals their inadequacy, 10.2. If they truly worked, if they truly cleansed from sin, there wouldn't be any need to continue offering them. The repeated offering of such sacrifices has the opposite effect. It reminds worshipers that their sins have not been truly removed. And indeed, their sins haven't been cleansed entirely. For animal sacrifices can't take away sins, 10.4. The sacrifice of Jesus is dramatically different from animal sacrifices. And in contrast to them, his sacrifice truly and finally cleanses from sin. Upon coming into the world, Jesus recognized his vocation in the words of Psalm 40, which one of my doctoral students is working on that passage, a most interesting use of the Old Testament. God did not ultimately find delight in burnt offerings and, and sin offerings, for such offerings could not finally remove sin. What God wanted from Jesus, his will for Jesus, was that Jesus would give of himself. Jesus was called to do the will of God, and this meant that he would offer himself as a sacrifice for sins, 10.10. We see clearly here why Jesus' sacrifice was better than Old Testament offerings. Instead of the sacrifice of unwilling animals, he willingly and gladly gave himself to God and surrendered his life for human beings. Here we have the sacrifice of one who is fully divine and fully human, and hence his one sacrifice atones for sins forever. Jesus' sacrifice is better than because of who he is. And who he is can't be separated from what he accomplished. Indeed, it is the foundation for what he accomplished. His one sacrifice was definitive and complete, and hence there is no further need for other sacrifices to atone for sins. Since final cleansing of sins has been accomplished, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Back to, back to Hebrews 1.3. Jesus sat down because his work as priest is finished. 113, 81, 10-12, 12-2. That's where I began. His sacrifice doesn't save halfway, but is completely effective in delivering those who belong to God. 725. So the connection between ontology, who Jesus is, and function, what he accomplished, is communicated in 726 through 28. Jesus' freedom from all defilement and uncleanness and sin is featured here. Unlike the high priest, he isn't stained by sin. Instead, he is a priest who has been perfected, 728. So he has no need to offer sacrifices for his own sins. On the contrary, as the sinless son of God and as the Melchizedekian priest, he atoned for sins through the one offering of himself. According to the law, the high priest entered the most holy place yearly to procure atonement with the blood of animals. 9.25. But Jesus' work was completely different. One sacrifice removes sin for all time, and thus he doesn't need to suffer over and over. 9.26 and 28. His once-for-all sacrifices suffices to cleanse from sin forever. The author pounds this truth home in 10.11 through 14. Priests stand day after day, offering over and over the same sacrifices, but they don't remove sins. 
The repetition conveys the futility of the entire enterprise. But Jesus, after one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at God's right hand, 10:12. His work is finished, since by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified, 10:14. The completeness and efficacy of what Christ has done is communicated by the truth that there is no need for further sacrifice. The work is finished with the one sacrifice. Jesus' one sacrifice opened up access to God, for as God's son and high priest, he passed through the heavens, 414, which means he entered the very presence of God. Jesus entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, 619, signify again the very presence of God. He entered God's presence as the forerunner, prodramas, and he is the forerunner by virtue of his sacrifice. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, believers are enabled to draw near to God, 719. There's the pastoral point, right? The ritual on the Day of Atonement reveals that the way into God's presence wasn't secured through the Old Covenant. Jesus won eternal redemption with his own blood and thereby entered into the perfect tabernacle, 911 and 12. This tabernacle, I said this this morning, isn't part of created reality, signifying that it represents God's presence. The author isn't suggesting that there is a real tabernacle in heaven. The language related to the tabernacle, I say again, is analogical and not literal. The earthly points to the heavenly, but the heavenly stands for the presence of God. So it is not as if there is a literal tabernacle in heaven with distinct compartments. The significance of Jesus' blood and the shedding of blood in sacrifices has often been discussed. This is a very controversial area, but again, I'm not, I'm not giving different views here because of time. But Jesus' shed blood doesn't include the notion of the release of his life, as if his life is mystically found in his blood. That's a very popular view out there by scholars and in popular circles as well. Instead, his blood signifies life that has been given up in death. They saw it every day. When, when they killed animals. They saw every day what happened, and, and they saw it with human beings, right? I think it's actually very simple. You take someone's blood away, they die. I think that's what's going on. We should not separate, in Jesus' case, the shedding of blood from the application of the blood in the sanctuary. The blood shed by Jesus has been applied to the heavenly sanctuary, just as the blood of animals was applied in the tabernacle temple. The author is not suggesting... Again, I'm interacting with Moffat here, that Jesus' blood was literally brought into a literal heavenly sanctuary. He appropriates the language of the cult to denote what Jesus has accomplished. And thus we have analogical rather than univocal language here. The author uses the symbolism of what took place in the earthly tabernacle to convey the truth that Jesus' death brings believers into God's presence. The blood of Jesus in Hebrews is sacrificial, denoting that his blood makes access to God possible. Believers, by virtue of Jesus' sacrificial blood, have the same boldness to enter God's presence, the most holy place, as Jesus did. The curtain is not only open once a year, as it was under the Old Covenant, chapter 9, but it has been torn open for every believer through the flesh of Jesus forever, 1020. We might say that access to God is more important than the sacrifice, since it is the goal of the sacrifice. But such a judgment could be misleading. Those who have access to God's presence 
will never forget how or why they have such access. A good reminder during this week in particular. Access to God means that the sins of human beings are forgiven. Human beings suffered under God's wrath, 2.17, and experienced death because of sin. Now sins are expiated and propitiated because of Jesus' death. God is not angry with human beings who are the brothers of Jesus, but counts them as his children, chapter 2. Their sins have been forgotten and forgiven because of Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross, 8.13. God's forgetting of sins in accord with the new covenant means that there is full and final forgiveness, and hence there is a need for a further sacrificial offering, 10, 17, and 18. Forgiveness means freedom and complete cleansing from sin. The author seems particularly concerned to emphasize that believers need not fear the defilement and shame which sin engenders. Animal sacrifices provide only an external purification, 913. The sacrificial nature of 914 is evident, for the author refers to Jesus' blood, and blood was a central element in the offering of sacrifices under the Old Covenant. Furthermore, Jesus offered himself unblemished. The language of offering, pros pharaoh, hails from Old Testament sacrifices. Many, many references. As does the word unblemished, amomon. Many references again. Jesus offered himself once to take away sins. His sacrificial blood is effective, for he cleanses our consciences so that believers are freed from the shame that disables us. So again, I think that's one of the pastoral point. You know, people today aren't tempted to go back to the Levitical sacrifices, but we, feel, we still feel shame and guilt. So that's what he's driving at. <clears throat> and that's what we drive at pastorally as well. As a result, we are liberated to serve the living God, 914. One can't serve God joyfully if one feels defiled, unclean, and shameful before God. Believers may now gladly draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, 1022. We have such assurance because through Christ's blood our evil conscience has been cleansed. The warnings in the letter have more weight because of what the readers would be leaving behind if they abandoned Christ. As the author says, they would repudiate the only sacrifice for sins available if they renounced Christ. 1026. Assurance, boldness to enter God's presence, and future hope would all be lost if they turned away from the one who gave his blood as a once-for-all sacrifice to atone for sins forever. Now I want to say something about perfection and assurance. In considering perfection in Hebrews, we shall explore two dimensions, the perfection of Jesus and the perfection of human beings. It is quite remarkable that the author speaks of the perfection of Jesus since he emphasizes, almost more than any other New Testament writer, that Jesus is without sin. We can think of 4.14, 7.26, Jesus is unblemished, other passages. In, in giving himself to God as an offering, he was without blemish, 9.14. Such claims about Jesus help us to see at the outset that being perfected doesn't mean that he was previously stained by sin. In 2.10, Jesus is said to be perfected through his sufferings. 
He wasn't purified of existing sin in his sufferings since he was already without sin, but he was qualified. That's, I think, a key word there. But he was qualified to serve as high priest by his sufferings. Merely being without sin did not qualify Jesus to serve as high priest. Maybe I shouldn't say merely being without sin. <clears throat> he needed to experience life to be tested and to suffer, 2.18. The fullness of hum human experience was his, 2.17. For he knows what it is like to be tempted, 4.15, and to feel the anguish of human life. He learned obedience in his sufferings, 5.8. And in that sense was perfected, 5.9, Irenaeus' re recapitulation theory regarding Christ's person you know, that Jesus went through every stage of life. You know that. There. Reflects Hebrews to some extent. For Jesus could not atone for sin as a child or even as a teenager. He needed to experience what it was like to obey God as he grew older so that his life of obedience had a depth and profundity that was lacking earlier. Jesus' perfection then had an experiential quality to it. And he demonstrated that he was holy gods in the midst of tears and anguish, 5-7. Jesus' perfection included his suffering on the cross. For the sufferings culminated in his death on the cross by which he stripped the devil of his power and freed human beings from being enslaved to death, chapter 2. The perfecting of Jesus also includes the ex ex expiatory and propitiatory work on the cross, he was qualified to serve as a high priest because of obedience in his sufferings and the atonement accomplished on the cross. Jesus' high priestly work stands in contrast to the Levitical priesthood in that he truly brought perfection, which means that through him, believers enjoy bold access to God. Furthermore, Jesus' perfection also included his exaltation, for as a result of his sufferings and exaltation, he became the source of eternal salvation. Hence his sufferings, death, and exaltation qualified him to serve as high priest. As, um, as Peterson says, Peterson has written, many of you know of this work, this, this, his dissertation on perfection in Hebrews. Peterson says, perfecting involved a whole sequence of events. His proving and suffering, his redemptive death, to fulfill the divine requirements for the perfect expiation of sins and his exaltation to glory and honor. Therefore, we should reject the idea that Jesus' perfection is exclusively eschatological so that he was only perfected as the reigning priest king. In other words, I'm arguing there's a perfecting going on throughout his life, but it culminates in his death and exaltation. Peterson sums up perfection in this way. His proving in temptation, his death as a sacrifice for sins, and his heavenly exaltation. Hebrews is also interested in the perfection or maturity of human beings. The letter investigate what investigates what qualifies human beings to stand before God. It is imperative that the readers progress on the maturity. Hebrews 6.1. Teleoteta. Progress on the maturity. For if they are not mature, teleon, they will not receive the eschatological reward. In other, in other words, those who are mature, perfect, 
cling to Christ in faith until the end. They do not fall away from the faith. Hebrews insists that perfection can't be obtained through the Old Testament priesthood and law. Perfection, teleosis, can't be achieved through the Levitical priesthood, 7-11. Since the law perfected a teleosin, so I'm saying those words just so you can hear it's the same word, the, the Old Testament law perfected nothing, 719. What the author means is that human beings didn't have the same access to God's presence through the law. The law, instead of granting access, reveals that human beings are too unclean and defiled to enter God's presence. The Levitical priesthood, therefore, couldn't really cleanse the conscience and bring forgiveness of sins. It cannot perfect this is a quote from Hebrews 9.13. It cannot perfect teleosi. It cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. Quite the contrary. It reminded people of their sins instead. For the same sacrifices offered repeatedly can never perfect teleosi again. This is 10.3. Can never perfect the worshipers. On the other hand, Jesus, quote, 10.14, by one offering has perfected Teteleokan, by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The word perfected in Hebrews has affinities with how Paul uses the word justification. I don't, I'm not saying they're the same. I said it has affinities. For believers aren't made morally perfect by virtue of Jesus' sacrifice. In other words, they aren't transformed so that they are without sin and perfectly holy in their everyday lives, but they are perfect before God by virtue of Christ's sacrifice. That is, their sins are forgiven and their consciences are cleansed so that they may boldly enter God's presence. We have seen that perfection means that the conscience is cleansed. So believers are qualified to enter God's presence. And it also means that believers have access to God's power and grace on a daily basis. The perfecting of the conscience isn't limited to the past. It frees and strengthens believers so that they boldly draw upon God's mercy and grace in their present trials. In other words, perfection is closely related to assurance. As Whitlark says, Christ's cleansing of the conscience does not, stand, does not only stand at the beginning of the Christian's pilgrimage, but is the basis of the empowering that the pilgrim experiences to approach God throughout the pilgrimage to the heavenly Jerusalem. In a few texts, the word sanctify, hagiazo, seems to be remarkably close in meaning to perfection in Hebrews. Believers are now sanctified through the once-for-all offering of Jesus Christ. We find both the word perfected and sanctified. We find that both perfection and sanctification are accomplished through the one sacrifice of Christ. On two other occasions as well in Hebrews, sanctification is attributed to Christ's blood. 10, 29, 13, 14. The term sanctify signifies Christ's work by which he consecrates and sets apart those who belong to him. Their holiness hails not from themselves, but from the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Believers are assured that they are holy before God, that they stand without blemish before him. Final perfection is an eschatological reality for Old Testament saints will not be perfected without New Testament believers, 1140. New Testament believers, insofar as they are perfected now, 
enjoy an eschatological preview of what will be theirs in a fuller sense on the last day. In one sense, believers are perfected now by virtue of Christ's definitive and final sacrifice. They are positionally holy. At the same time, there is a day coming when every remnant of sin will be fully removed from those who are Christ. The author's comment in 1223 suggests that this is true of believers who are with the Lord now before the day of the resurrection. Their spirits are perfected, though they still wait for the day of final resurrection. Perfection in Hebrews is closely associated with the new covenant and the assurance of salvation. Believers can be assured of final salvation since Jesus by one offering has perfected forever those who are sanctified, 1014. The conscience of believers has been perfected and cleansed forever through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins is an accomplished reality and what has been secured will not be undone. What characterizes the new covenant is full forgiveness of sins and the writing of the law upon the heart. Since God is the one who imprints the law upon the heart, what is inscribed upon the heart cannot and will not be erased. Believers are empowered and strengthened to persevere to the end because the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the one who equips believers to do as well, 13, 20, and 21. The writer implies that they have resurrection power, the power that defeated death to enable them to do what is pleasing in God's sight. Believers are assured not only of forgiveness of sins, but of God's presence and power in their daily lives. Confidence of perseverance comes from the work of God. In the Old Testament, we read regularly that God is the one who sanctifies and sets apart Israel as his own. Over and over again in Leviticus, right? He says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the one who sanctifies his people. Whitlark observes, I'm drawing on Jason Whitlark a lot here, his dissertation. He observes that God sanctifying his people is closely associated with his electing and redeeming work. In Leviticus 22, 31 through 33, God's election of his people is also communicated in 2.13, where the words of Isaiah are placed on the lips of Jesus. Here I am with the children God gave me. Jesus' brothers and sisters have been given to him by God himself, demonstrating that their belonging to God is the work of God, the product of his electing grace. Along the same lines, the reference to the names of the firstborn written in heaven, 1223, may point to election. The perfect passive tense suggests that they are enrolled by God's initiative. Identifying his hearers as Abraham's offspring, 216, also resonates with the Old Testament and the grace of God in choosing his people. The author draws upon Isaiah 41, 8 through 10, where Abraham is identified as God's chosen and God's beloved. The word beloved is often associated with election. By alluding to Isaiah 41, 8 through 10, and by describing the hearers as the offspring of Abraham, the author calls attention to God's election. Just as Israel was chosen by the Lord, so now believers in Christ are his chosen ones. The author says in Hebrews 9.15 that the hearers are called to receive an eternal inheritance. Calling signifies God's effective work by which he summons people to put their faith in him. It should not be confused with an invitation, but connotes instead God's supernatural work, which creates faith in God. 
Interestingly, we see another allusion to Isaiah 41.9, where God's calling is closely connected to his electing grace. God's electing grace assures believers that he has granted them and will grant them the grace to endure until the final day. On the one hand, believers are called upon to persevere, but election reminds the hearers of the letters that their endurance is ultimately ascribed to God. Indeed, it suggests that God will see to it that they do not forsake him. I, I bring this out because the assurance that's in the letter, that, that he will give them the resources to bear whatever comes their way. Those whom God has perfected and sanctified and chosen will, by his grace, persevere in faith until the end. For those who are sanctified and perfected by the atoning death of Jesus, by the sacrifice of Jesus, have been perfected forever. Thank you. <clears throat>